Right, as I put perhaps in my slightly overly cryptic message um, the other day about uh, Grace Church, we're starting a new series in Psalm 119. We're going to do three weeks in Psalm 119. So if you have a Bible, grab it, let's get it open in Psalm 119. Uh, and we're going to just spend a bit of time this evening chatting uh, about uh, Psalm 119. And as we're, as we're thinking about how we start the year, and as we as uh, as a church and as church leaders, we're thinking about what do we want to do at the beginning of uh, 2021? Uh, we thought about, we chatted about it, and we thought, wouldn't it be great just to spend a few weeks in Psalm 119? Now, you might not know anything about Psalm 119. You might even not even be able to find it in your Bible. Um, but it, there's a contents page and it's somewhere in the kind of back end of Psalm. So if you flick through, hopefully you'll find it. Um, but if you do know anything about Psalm 119, you probably, the thing that you probably know is that it's the longest chapter in the Bible. So the Bible is split into chapters uh, and Psalm 119 is the, is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's like a hundred odd verses. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really long. And if you know anything else about Psalm 119, then it will be that it is not only a really long chapter, but it's a really long chapter, primarily about one thing, about God's word. It's a psalm, which is, is a song. And it, what it does is it spirals around different elements of God's word, different things, characteristics of God's words, different ways that the writer has experienced and engaged with God's words. And we wanted to start this year there as a church um, but for a few reasons. So, so the first reason is that, um, is that one of our core values, one of the things that we say we want to be about as a church is um, we want to be rooted in the word. It's there on the website. It was there from the beginning of Grace Church. We, we put it up there and said, this is one of the things we want to be about. We want to be rooted in the words. And by that, what we mean is we want to be a church whose, whose lives are built around and built on God's word. We want God to use his word to breathe life into us, to transform us, to comfort, to challenge us, to bring us into relationship with him. We believe that God's word is something that we can build our lives upon. And so as a church, we thought, wouldn't it be great just to start the year and say, what would, what would it look like for us to spend a bit of time looking into God's word? So, so that, that was one thing. The, the, the second thing, reason we wanted to do it is, if you look back across the history of God's people, then, then what you'll see is that God's word has been central to their lives. So, so God's people have always been people who gathered around God's word. That's what they did. They, they came together and they looked at it. You can read that in early Christians, in, as you read the book of Acts. You can read it um, in, through all the Old Testament history of the Jewish people. There were people where God's word was central to who they were. So if you look over the thousands of years history of God's people, then what you'll see is, is a community of people who read God's word, listened to God's word, spoke God's word, sang God's word, memorized it, studied it, meditated on it, lived by it. That was just, that's just how God's people have always been. Uh, but it, 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 struck, uh, it struck me as I was uh, kind of thinking about this and thinking about, well, where are we as a church? That in our culture... 
I wonder if we live in a, in a time where it's more and more common for God's people to find that God's word gets squeezed out of their lives. I wonder if that's just one of the things that we in our kind of current climate are battling. Different cultures, different times have different battles, different things that they struggle with. And I wonder if one of them for us is, is that we've moved slightly away from uh, uh, being as rooted on God's word as, as Christians and God's followers have been for, for thousands of years. And so I just thought it'd be great for us to examine, well, well, how did God's people engage with God's word? What did they think of it? How, how did they understand it? Uh, and to see whether there's things that we need to learn about as we look at uh, a different time and a different culture and the way they engaged with it. And then the final reason is that maybe you're here today and you're just looking into Christianity. You're not sure what you think of it. Maybe you've been around for a while, but you haven't yet quite made up your mind. Well, put, put as simply as you can, you can't do that without going to the Bible and working out what you think the Bible is. If you're going to look into Christianity seriously, if you're going to really make a decision about it, at some point you have to decide what is the Bible and what do I, what do I think of it? You've got to decide, do I really believe this is God's word spoken to me? Do I really believe that, that in this book I'm able to know God and understand who he is? Do I believe that God actively speaks to me through this? Do I believe that the things in it are true? You've got to work out all those things. So if you're looking into Christianity, a great place to start is to think, well, I'm going to look at the Bible. I'm going to think, well, what actually is this book? How am I going to relate to it? So, so let, let's get to it. So, psalm 119. Uh, let's look at how the writer of this psalm viewed God's word. And through it, consider how we might view it, how we might engage with it. Um, uh, over uh, the Christmas period, Sarah, uh, so Sarah's my wife and I, we, um, we watched through um, one of those TV shows on Netflix. It was called The Queen's Gambit. I don't know how many of you uh, have watched it. it it's, it's a fascinating Netflix show about chess. I know that for some of you, you're there thinking, okay, fascinating and chess don't necessarily go together. Um, but but it, it is, it's, a really, it's a really interesting show. Uh, it's, uh, it's a made-up story, but it's about a... Um, uh, a woman chess player who grows up as an orphan becomes this kind of chess grandmaster is broadly speaking uh, the storyline it's actually really interesting it's a really nice story because it's got a really strong redemptive theme that runs through it um, uh, I can see that Bob and Nikki are saying they never thought they'd find chess interesting I couldn't see what the rest of the comments said but I'm assuming it said but the Queen's Gambit was really good um, so um, it, it was it was a really good uh, good, uh, good show but what, one of the things it did for me was it, it, it got me um, kind of sitting there and I thought, I want to start playing chess again. Now, you may not know this, but I was a bit of a chess prodigy as a kid. I wasn't. I wasn't at all a bit of a chess prodigy as a kid, but I, I broadly speaking know how the pieces move. So I know which bits do, do what on a chessboard. So I thought, right, I'm going to dig out a chessboard and I'm going to play. But then I realized if I dug out a chessboard and played, because I can't actually see anyone at the moment, the only people I could play was, were my children. So I, I, you know, I smashed Hope and Anna a few times just to make myself feel better, um, but found that that wasn't terrifically satisfying. So, so what I then did was I downloaded the, uh, a chess app on my phone and I thought right I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna start playing a bit more chess and see if I can get good uh, at chess and so I started playing chess and I, I played a few people I won a couple of games and I thought right I'm gonna start playing a few randoms so I played I played a few randoms uh, and I just got repeatedly beaten just again and again and again uh, I kept moving my pieces and thinking that looks all right and then all of a sudden I was dead uh, I was like how how is this happening 
Now, now why, why did that happen? Well, that happened because as I was watching someone who was really good at chess, and I was, as I was watching the show about it, I thought, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to go and play chess. I want to be able to go and beat those people at chess. Now, you probably, you may not have had that experience about chess. So you may never have watched someone play chess and thought, think, I just wish I could do it like that. But you've probably had it with something. So you'll have had that experience of watching someone who is really good at something and thinking, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to do that as well as they can. And maybe, maybe it was with playing an instrument. I have this all the time. I go and watch uh, like a band who I really like and I'll sit there and I'll watch the drummer and I'll think, man, I wish I could drum like that. And I'll go home and I'll play for 20 minutes and get so frustrated that I can't, that I won't touch the drums again for a couple of months. Like you, you just watch someone really good and you just think, I want to be able to do that. Show, show me how to do that. Or maybe it's with sports, or maybe it's with art. I don't know what it is for you. But you'll have had that experience of looking at someone who's really good at something and thinking, I want to be like that. I want to be able to do that thing. Because that's what we do with things that are good. When something is good, we want to learn about it. We, when, when, some, when someone is good, we want to imitate them. So, so where I want us to start is I want us to look at Psalm 119, and I want us to start in verse 68. It's an unconventional way of looking at a psalm, but, you know, let, let's go with it. I want us to, I want us to go to the middle, uh, uh, verse 68. I just want to look at verse 68 just to, to kick us off, because I think this is a really helpful starting point for what is it that drives this writer's obsession with, with God's words? You know, this guy writes the longest chapter in the Bible all about God's word. Why is he so obsessed by this? And talking about God, this is what he says. He says, you are good... And what you do is good. That's this psalmist's kind of summary of God, of who God is. Now, I want us to pause there. And I want to ask you, I want to ask you a personal question. This is, this is the question. What is your view of God? Now, now, just pause there for a minute. Because probably you've got a whole load of thoughts going around your head of like, oh, well, this, 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 and this. Just pause there for a minute. This is what I want you just to disconnect from those initial thoughts you had and, and, and go, okay, I'm not asking you how you think you should view God. So I'm not asking you, what do you think you should think about God? That, that's not what I'm asking you. And I'm not asking you, what do you perceive as the right question? So, you know, I'm not asking you, if you were trying to pass a GCSE in, who is God, what would I think the right answer was? What I'm asking you is to answer the question, your actual functional view of God. Now, now by functional, I mean the view of God which you live by as opposed to the view of God which you state. So all of us can say, well, I think God's like this. The question is, do you live as if you think God is like that? Is that actually the view of God that drives the things that you do? Now, now you, that, it, your view of God may be many things. You might be here going, my view of God, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not actually sure he exists. I, I, I could go either way. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. But I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. but probably you'll have a functional way of living there. So maybe you've got to the point where you go, I'm not sure if he exists, so I'm going to live as if he didn't. Maybe that's where you are. I don't know if he exists. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, but I'm going to live as if he does, didn't. I'm not going to let it influence my decisions because he might not even be out there. Or maybe you go, he probably exists, but I, I, if you were to ask me, how do I actually live? I live as if he's irrelevant. He exists, but he probably is just going to let me crack on with whatever it is that I want to do. If I leave him alone, he'll probably leave me alone. That's how I live. 
Or, or maybe, maybe you have a completely different view of God. Maybe you view God as a taskmaster. God is there and you know he disapproves of you. When you think about God, you think of him looking at you just going, I'm a, I'm a little bit disappointed. You know you failed him. Yeah, and so, so actually the way you live is you just try not to think about him because when you do, you just feel rubbish. Do, do you see what I mean? How, how do you actually think about God? How do you, what do you think God is like? Not, not kind of if someone was to ask you the question, but in terms of how you actually live. How does it actually impact the way you live? Now, now, the reason I want us to start there is because how you engage with someone's words is going to depend massively on how you think about the person who is speaking. Let, let, me, let me make this as obvious as I can for you. You could be here tonight and, and I could have upset you. You know, I could have said something unkind or unthoughtful to you and you could be seething about that. You could be there like, I can't believe you said that to me. Or, or maybe I'll let you down at some point. Maybe you expected me to do something, I didn't do something, or you expected me to be a certain way and I wasn't that way, uh, and, and you're just disappointed with me. Maybe you heard me once say that the film Once was in my top five films, and so you, so you now just think, how can, I, how can I take anything that idiot says seriously? Now, now, if that's the case, you will now be engaging with the things I'm saying differently to someone who views me differently you see you will be you'll be now responding to what i'm saying a certain way because of how you view me if you view me as an idiot you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna probably ignore the majority of words i've said if you if you are offended or, or, or i've upset you you're likely to take more offense at the things i say maybe you're there thinking ah well he says these things but actually i know he did x y and z you see, what you think about the person impacts the way you relate to the words they say. The same is true of God's words. What you think about God is going gonna, is gonna to massively impact how you engage with his words. You see, the psalmist engages with God's words because of who he thinks God is. And who does he think God is? What is his view of God? Simple. God is good. And he does good. That's the psalmist's view of God. God is good. He is morally perfect. He is beautiful. He is incomprehensibly powerful. He is kind. He is gentle. He is sacrificial in love for others. He is good. And not only is he good, but he does good. He does good things. He creates beautiful things. He comforts those who are hurting. He draws near to those who are oppressed. He indiscriminately loves and adopts all kinds of people into his family. He is good and he does good. That's who the psalmist thinks God is. And because that is who the psalmist thinks God is, then he wants something from God. He looks at this God and says, this God is good and he does good things. And so he wants something from him. And what he wants from him is what he goes on to say in the very next phrase in verse 68, if you've still got it in front of you. This is what he wants from God. He says, God, you are good and you do good. And so teach me your decrees. Teach me. You're good and you do good things. So teach me. I want to be good. I want to do good things. So, so teach me how to do it. Teach me your ways. Show me how to be like that. You see, that is why as a church, we want to be rooted in God's words. That is why 
Christians throughout history have been obsessed with the Bible. It's because God is good and what he does is good. And so we want to know about who he is and what he does. We want to hear from him. We want to learn from him. We want to be transformed by him. We want to be like him. I, I don't know. I, I wonder how you started this year in terms of reading the Bible. Maybe you're not a person who reads the Bible and you go, why would I want to do that? Or, or maybe you started this year and you've gone, I'm going I'm to start big. And you've got yourself a reading plan. I love the January reading plan frenzy that kind of hits churches. It's a, it's a big thing. Everyone's like, it's January. Let's get ourselves a Bible reading plan. I love, I love a reading plan. Reading plans are, are really good. Um, I like having a bit of structure to my Bible reading, so I'm not just going, ooh, what should I read today? Uh, and I like the kind of process of reading through and thinking about uh, things in that way. <coughs> but as we think about a reading plan, I wonder why you're doing a reading plan. Like, well, why, why, have you, why have you done that if that's the thing you've done? Or to ask a more basic question, why do you read the Bible? If you read the Bible, why do you read it? Like, what's the point? Well, let me be clear. The point is not to earn God's favour. That's not why we read the Bible. We don't read the Bible as some sign of kind of religious devotion, you know, just to show God how committed we are to him. Look, how committed I am. I read like five pages of the Bible today. It's not why we do it. We don't read the Bible to earn spiritual brownie points. As I was writing that, that phrase, brownie points, I was trying to work out how you spell brownie points. And then I got to me thinking about like, what is a brownie point? Like, is it something to do with cake or is it something to do with the female equivalent of cubs? If anyone knows, I'd be interested because I just was trying to work out what actually are brownie points. But anyway, you don't do them to, to earn brownie points. I'm sure someone in the chat will inform me of what a brownie point actually is. But, but the point is, is simple. Um, you, the, the psalmist is not obsessed with God's word because he thinks that earns him some favour with God. Nowhere in Psalm 119 will you see that. No, he loves God's word because he longs to hear what a good God will say to him. Because he wants to learn from that good God. So, so let me be clear as we go into three weeks in Psalm 119. This sermon, so what I'm, this, this, the stuff I'm talking about now, this series is not about us pressurizing you into reading your Bible more. That's not what this series is about. We're not here going, let's start the year and let's just put a bit of pressure on people. See if we can get them reading the Bible. You know, just kind of lay down the law, make it, make it big. Let's see if we can kind of get people doing a bit more of this. That's not our desire at all. This sim series is simply about giving us all, whatever we believe, whether we struggle to put the Bible down or struggle to pick it up, is to give all of us an opportunity to look at why the Bible has been so highly valued by so many of God's people in the past and to allow that to impact the way we view the Bible and what we do with it. So that, that, that's where we're going. So let's, let's, let's go now. Now we've kind of got that set. Let's go to the start of the psalm. So let's, let's flick back. Verse one. Let's start at the beginning. We're not going to do every verse in this psalm because we wouldn't get through it in three weeks. But we're going to, let, let's, let's go at the beginning. Verse one, I'm going to read the first eight verses to you. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their hearts. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. 
Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. That is the first section of Psalm 119. Uh, Psalm 119 uh, is an acrostic poem. So that means that each section... Um, is, about, is kind of uh, started with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it works through every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And each line, so each of our verses, starts with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So that's how it's structured. So it's written, so you have a, imagine this first section, if it was, if it was English, would be, this is the A section. And every line would begin with the letter A. That, that's kind of how it's built. But this section, it, it actually introduces many of the themes and key ideas of the psalm. And, and I want you to notice here at the beginning that God's word is a word to live by. That's what God's word is. Blessing, according to the psalmist here, blessing comes from living according to God's word. That's where blessing comes from. He says it again and again. Blessed are the ones who walk according to the law of the Lord, who follow his ways, who obey his precepts, who obey his decrees, who consider his commands. He says the same thing or very similar things over and over again. All those words, law, commands, decrees, they have slightly different meanings, but they're basically just ways of referring to God's words. And so the psalmist begins with a really straightforward idea. If you live according to the ways that God has laid down in his word, then you will be blessed. Then, he says in verse three, you will do no wrong. Then, he says in verse six, you will never be put to shame. Living according to God's word will mean that you will live a moral life, a blessed life. God's word will never let you down. I wonder what you think blessing looks like in your life. What does it look like for you to be blessed? What, what are those times where you say, oh, I've been really blessed there, or God's been really good to me there? What are the times where that's the way you think and that's the way you feel? Because I, I sometimes wonder if we have a very narrow view of what God's blessing actually looks like. So we think that being blessed looks like having more money or having a high quality of life or life going relatively easy for us. So, so let, me, let me try and break this down. This is what we do. We have an enjoyable day. We have a day that, that seems to have gone really well. We're just like, oh, it's been a great day. And we say at the end, oh, I just feel so blessed there. Or, or maybe we say about someone else, someone else goes and they have an interview and they get a job and you go, oh, look, God's just blessed them so much. Now, don't get me wrong, it's great to be thankful for the things God gives us. It's great to reflect on how God gives us good things for us to enjoy. But it is striking. It's one of the things I've, been, uh, I've thought about a lot over the last six or seven years. The people that the Bible describes as blessed are rarely identified as the person for whom life is going really well. So we look at someone and go, oh, look how well their life's going. God's blessing them. That's not the way the Bible normally talks about what it looks like to be blessed. 
So, so you'll, you'll read in other Psalms, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. What does blessing look like? Ble- blessing doesn't look like necessarily having an easy life. It looks like being forgiven. And you can be forgiven whether your life is easy or hard. That's what blessing looks like. You have a similar thing here. Look at who the person who's blessed is here. The person who's blessed is the person who is living God's way. But let, let me make it as simple as I can. We are blessed when we obey God. So, so think about the way we normally talk about it and, and just think maybe we should start thinking about it different, slightly differently. Blessing does not primarily look like having the best job. Rather, it looks like seeking to live God's way in whatever position God has placed you. You are not blessed because God has given you a great job. You are blessed because in the place that God has put you, you are able to live the way God's called you to. Blessing does not primarily look like having more money. It looks like being generous with the money that you have as God calls to be. So we could look at someone who, who has loads of money and they could not be at all blessed. And we could look at someone else who has no money but is generous with them. We could say they are blessed. Because blessing primarily does not look like the things we have. It looks like obeying God. Blessing does not primarily look like having the Kellogg's family. It looks like seeking to love those people that God has put you in relationship with, whoever they might be. You see, we think blessing relates to the circumstances of our life. When actually blessing looks like how do we live in the circumstances of our life. We're blessed when we live the way God calls us to in the circumstances that we're put in. The blessed life is not primarily the prosperous life. It's the life which knows God's ways and seeks to walk in them. That, that's an idea the psalmist is going to come back to again and again in Psalm 119. Look with me at verses, um, let's go back to the place we were before. So we're in 68. Let's look at what comes just before that, verses 65 and 66. So, so uh, grab your Bible, flip forward to 65 and 66, and, and look, at, look at what he says there. He says this. He says, do good to your servant according to your word, Lord. Teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I trust your commands. The reason the blessed life is the life which obeys God's word is because through God's word, he teaches us two things he says there. He teaches us knowledge and good judgment. Man, as I look through my life, how much do I need knowledge and good judgments? Like, how often do I wish? I just wish I'd made a better decision there. I wish I'd had some better judgment there. I wish I'd been able to judge that conversation better. I wish I'd been able to judge that, that situation better. You see, we need knowledge because we need to know what God actually says about certain things. We need to know what God says is light and good and what God says is wrong and bad. We need God to inform us of this because our own knowledge of good and bad is imperfect. And the reason it's imperfect is because it's influenced by so many things that are themselves imperfect. Our view of what is good and bad is influenced by our desires, but our desires are imperfect. It's impacted by our our past experiences. How are we brought up? What have we seen as a consequence of different things, which are themselves imperfect? It's influenced by our culture. What does, what does our society around us say is good or bad, which is itself imperfect? You see, our own view, our own knowledge of what's good and bad is imperfect. So we need God to give us knowledge to know what is good and what is bad. But we also need good judgment. We need to know when and how to apply that knowledge 
to the situations we're in. And so as you read the Bible, what you don't read is simply an instruction manual saying, well, this is true and this is true and this is a thing and this is good and this is bad. What you read are real life stories of how people have lived. How have people who knew God and have seen his goodness, how have they applied that knowledge to a myriad of situations? And of course, most clearly we've seen it because God himself has lived as a human in the person of Jesus and shown us what it looks like to exercise good judgment based on the knowledge of what is good and bad. If there's, a, if there's a take-home thing that I want you to, to have from uh, this week, if there's one thing I want you to have in your head just uh, and to think over and meditate on and ponder this week, it's this. A failure to know God's word leaves you ill-equipped to deal with the situations you will find yourself in. This is why the Bible is so important. Because a failure to know God's word will leave you ill-equipped to deal with the situations you find yourself in. I've been so struck throughout numerous conversations I've had uh, during my time as a church leader over the past like 13 years, the, the many conversations I've had, I've been so struck at how when we don't know the Bible, we find it so much harder to navigate the world we're living in. It's just, it's just a lot harder. For example, let, let me give you some examples. I have had numerous conversations with people who are going through difficult times. Life just feels hard and they feel like they're going through the mill. And the conversation I find myself having again and again is people doubting if God exists or if God loves them. You know, I'm going through all this. Can God really be out there? Can God really love me? Now, I understand that emotional response. And the good news is you see some of that emotional response in the Psalms. It gives us some language for that, which is really helpful. But actually, as we read the Bible, what you see is that we're connecting things that the Bible doesn't connect. The Bible is full of people who followed God faithfully, who were deeply loved by him, and who went through really difficult times. Jesus, the person who the Father loves most completely in the whole world, suffered incredibly, was eventually tortured and killed. You see, as we read and study and meditate on the Bible, we become better equipped to deal with the hard things in our lives because we start going, this is not caused by the fact that God isn't out there or that he doesn't love me. Because as you read the Bible, you can't think that that's what causes suffering and difficult times in our life. No, what we start to see is that the suffering and difficult times that we're going through are part of the problem which God is committed to solving. As we meditate on the Bible, we're able to see that the Bible talks about difficult and hard times as opportunities for growth, opportunities to enjoy God more, opportunity to love others. You see, it's a knowledge of God which will equip us to deal with difficult times. As we read the Bible, as we see, well, actually, what does the Bible say about hard and difficult times? What does it say about God's love for me? Then you are better equipped to navigate the hard times you will go through in your life. Or, or take a different example. Um, maybe you're dealing with a situation where you feel that you've been deeply wronged by someone or, or sinned against. And it's easy at that point to think, I could never forgive that person. Or even to think, I want to forgive them, but I just don't know how. 
It's only allowing God's word to go deep in us that we're able to get a glimpse of the depth of the forgiveness that we have received. And what the Bible says is that the key to you being able to forgive someone is not some five-step program. It's not, oh, well, you just need these things. It's not, you need to will it more. The key to you being able to forgive that person is you knowing the forgiveness that you've received. So you go to the Bible and the better, the, the better you know the story of the Bible of a God who has forgiven you at great personal expense, then you will be equipped to be able to cope with that time where someone deeply wrongs you, where someone sins against you. If you don't do that, you will be less well equipped to deal with that situation. The same could be said for so many things we'll face in our life. How to behave in our marriages, in our jobs, how to deal with our kids, how to spend our time. It's as we immerse ourselves in the Bible that we gain the knowledge and good judgment we need. If we neglect the Bible, we hamper our ability to live well in the world that God has made. That's why the psalmist is so committed to God's words. So, What is at the heart of that knowledge and good judgment? What is it which the Bible actually does? What is the knowledge that it gives us that enables us to make better judgment, that enables us to navigate this world better? Well, as I close, I want to draw our eyes to a couple of verses which begin to unpack what God's word does. Look with me at verses 36 and 37. Verses 36 and 37, just uh, probably kind of a little bit before where we were. This is what the psalmist says. He says, turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. This is what God's word does. It fixes our eyes on something more valuable and more worthwhile than ourselves. Put put simply, the Bible helps us to view the value of things more accurately. During this week in life groups, you can go along and you can try and prove me wrong. I'm going to say something and maybe I'm wrong about it, um, but I'll say it and then you can discuss and work out whether I'm right or not. Every poor decision we make, every mistake we make, is because we've, we've valued something too highly and something else too lowly. That's where mistakes come from. They come because we place the wrong value on things. That's why we do the wrong things. That's why we make bad decisions. That's why we do things that we regret. We regret it because we did something based on the value of something, and, and in hindsight, we think it wasn't worth it. It wasn't as valuable as we thought it was. Every bad decision we make comes down to a a misattribution of value. Us placing the wrong value on something. You can see this all the time. That marriage that was destroyed by an affair was destroyed because somebody valued a particular relationship or a particular sexual experience too highly and the relationship with their spouse not highly enough. Why they did that's why that happened. They valued one thing too highly and something else not highly enough. The reliance with on money, which saps away the job, uh, the joy in our life, it comes because we value money and what that can offer too highly, and we value other things in our life 
not highly enough. That, that sense of distance that we have from God, that, that sense of disconnection from him that we experience, that comes because we don't value spending time with him highly enough uh, and we value something else, that computer game, that book, that hobby, that job, too highly. That dishonesty over an insurance claim or an expense form or a tax return comes about because we value money too highly and we value integrity not highly enough. That unkind words comes about because we value what we wanted too highly and the good of the other person not highly enough. Every bad decision we make comes because we've got the value of things wrong. God uses his word to turn our hearts away from selfish things, away from selfish gain, away from worthless things, and towards those things which we were actually created to enjoy. God uses his word to turn our eyes away from worthless things and towards things which actually matter in our lives. Life is a battle for valuing things rightly. And that's what God does in his word. You see, that's why so often we get exactly what we want and find that it fails to satisfy us. It's because we've overvalued that thing. We thought that thing was really valuable and then we got it and we realised it wasn't as valuable as we thought it was. And that can be in big ways and it can be in little ways. I often look back on uh, kind of times in my life and I might have a day where I can do whatever I want. You know, I can get up when I want. I can eat what I want. I can do whatever activities I want. And I get to the end of the day and I think, that wasn't that good. I'm like, what do you mean that wasn't that good? You could have done anything you wanted. You did exactly what you wanted all day. How can that not be that good? It's because I valued the wrong things. I spent that day thinking, what will make this day great? will be eating junk and doing all the things that I feel like doing at that moment. And actually, it didn't because I placed the wrong value on things. As we immerse ourselves in God's word, we're able to begin to understand the true value of things. And as we see what is really important in our lives, we're increasingly able to make decisions which prioritize those things. That's what a good decision is. It's a decision that prioritizes things that are valuable and doesn't prioritize things that are less valuable. The psalmist loves God's word because through it, he is able to better navigate the complexities of life. Now, Whatever you believe here this evening, you will be battling with those same complexities. Life is a complicated thing. It's hard to navigate it well. You will be battling with that. You need to be equipped to deal with that. And the psalmist says it is in God's word that I'm enabled to deal with the, just how complicated life is. Whatever you believe, you will find yourself living for selfish gain, and you will find that selfish gain disappointing you. Whatever you believe, you will find that. You will experience what it looks like to pursue selfish gain and to find that it doesn't satisfy. The psalmist says, as I go to the Bible, I'm able to see what the right value of selfish gain is, and I'm able to see what things really matter. My, my prayer for each of us as we battle with a life which is too complicated for us. As we find our pursuit of selfish gain failing to satisfy. My, my prayer for each one of us this evening is that we would increasingly go back to God's word and allow him 
to slowly help us to see a different way of living, to understand what really matters in this world and what is actually worth pursuing.